0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Linda Bailey Walsh.
1: And it is like the biggest victory of my entire life. Like I'm literally just standing there holding my phone in the air like the greatest accomplishment of my entire life.
0: That and more. But first... Have you thought what a great gift it is to purchase storytelling training for a friend or a loved one? There's our video courses at the storystudio.org that the recipient can take at their own pace in their own time, or there's our one-on-one coaching with any of our instructors, the same folks who coach the storytellers for the podcast, including myself. Listen, if you have any questions about any of that, You can just email me directly at at dot showcom and let's figure out how you can give the gift of storytelling training this holiday season because it's such a joy.
2: We'll be right back.
0: All right. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Peter Gabriel behind me now. We're going to be hearing him throughout the whole episode, and it is an episode we're calling Reclaiming Stories About Getting Back In Touch With Your Own Self-Worth When You Might Have Lost Sight Of It For A While. I know a lot about that. <laughs> We're going to start with a story that Linda Bailey Walsh recently shared at the Risk Live show at the Hotel Cafe. Now, you can find her at Linda Walsh on Instagram. And here's the thing. I myself was just visiting L.A. So just a few days ago, I was at the Hotel Cafe in L.A. co-hosting a Risk show with David Crabb. And it's a delightful space. It's the perfect place for an intimate evening of amazing stories. And lo and behold, Linda was in the audience that night. (laughs) So we finally met face to face. And I said, holy shit, I'm just about to put a story of yours on the podcast. And she was just as delightful to chat with as she is in this story. So here she is now, Linda Bailey Walsh with a story we call... Lost and Found.
1: So a few years back, I had a big birthday. Just be cool. (laughs) You don't need to know what birthday it was to enjoy the story. It's fine. But I was in a really bad place in my life. It was probably the worst place I'd ever been in my life. My heart had been smashed. I'd been betrayed by the people I trusted most in the world. A few of the most important people in the world had died. And I was working, I was working like four freelance jobs just to like try to make ends meet. And it wasn't really working. Everything creative was just gone. I didn't even recognize myself because it was just all about survival. And uh, one night I was at a dinner party at my friend's house who had also gone through some really hard times. And um, he mentioned to me that he had gone away to a writers and artists retreat in the south of France. And he just kind of recovered there and worked. And I just said, and I meant it. I said, that sounds like heaven on earth and you deserve it. And he looked at me and he said, you deserve it. And something about just that kindness Just that moment of someone you love looking at you, it just broke me. And I said things that I hadn't said out loud to anyone, which was that I knew I was loved, but I felt like I was a crushing disappointment to everyone I knew. And again, I knew people cared for me, but I really didn't think anyone believed in me anymore. I thought that the people who loved me just... Pitied me,
2: and I really
1: ruined that dinner party. <laughs> and then, about two months later, the actual birthday came up, and um, I got this gift. And it was a group gift, which is always awesome. And it was from about 20 to 25 people, and it was from some of, some of the people I'm closest to in the whole entire world, and some people I hadn't even barely spoken to in like 20 years. The gift was a one week, all expenses paid trip to La Muse Artist and Writers Retreat in the south of France. And it was just incredible. And the thoughtfulness that went into this gift I mean, they covered everything. They covered my travel, they covered anything I needed for the trip. They even covered the, the lost wages that I would lose because, you know, when you're working freelance, you just have to keep on working and working, there's no time off. I mean, it was just incredible. And even when I was getting ready to leave, you know, they gave me notebooks and someone gave me their used MacBook Pro. And like all of a sudden, this person who couldn't afford brand name ketchup was on her way to the south of France to go to a writer's retreat. And um, and it was just incredible. I was like, and you know, part of me was like, maybe this is who I am now. Maybe I'm a person who goes to France and does things like this now. So, to tell you a little bit about Lemuse, Lemuse is just this absolutely magical place, this, this huge house, chateau, maison, I don't know, big house uh, in the south of France. And it's nestled in the mountains. And there's nothing else near it, but you can see like literal castles in the distance. It's incredible. And we had to go grocery shopping. One of the things they told us was like, we're going to have to stop at a grocery, we'll pick you up at the train station, and we have to go to the grocery store because there's nothing once you get there. Like nothing. There's nothing you can run out and buy at all. So you have to go get all of your groceries for the week there. And I apparently, I decided that I needed like bread and cheese and chocolate and wine. <laughs> and I was right. That's exactly all I needed for the week. So then I get to Muse, and again, it's just this beautiful three or four story. I don't even know, it just went on and on. 1700s building, and I get to meet the other writers that are there. And one is writing um, a romance novel from the 1700s, set in Romania. And then there's a poet who interprets Proust into other languages for fun. <laughs> And then there's, like, a political writer for Time magazine. And at this point, I am not keen on telling them that I write, like, funny little stories about the time I vacuumed my hair up in a vacuum and had to cut eight inches off because the vacuum was stuck to my head. (laughs) So I said, um, I write memoir. (laughs) And short stories. (laughs) These could be true. But I was uh, really, and truly, extremely intimidated. And uh, after we all met, we decided that, you know, you worked on your own most of the time, but we decided that we were gonna get together at the end of the week, and we were gonna read some of our work to each other. <laughs> so to give you an idea of like, how much of a fish out of water I was, I'm in my room one night, and it's beautiful. You know, there's like lavender everywhere. It's, you know, incredible. Like, I heard nothing the entire time I was there. I never heard a cell phone ring. I never heard an alarm clock. I woke up with the roosters. But so one night I decide to take a shower and I'm in the shower and I look up and on the curtain rod is the biggest spider that I have ever seen. in my entire life and hope to ever see in my entire life like literally it's it's wrapped around the curtain rod and it's the body of it is like a golf ball like it's nuts so i just get out of the shower very carefully and i wrap myself in a robe and i'm running through the halls of this 1700s building like some like outtake from dangerous liaisons i'm just like a crazy person my hair is wet and i'm running around and banging on doors and begging for help And the time writer comes out and I explain to him, you know, there's a tarantula in my room and he's going to come help me. And everyone's like coming out of their rooms at the same time. And another writer comes out and I explain about the spider and she says, well, we're not going to kill it. And I'm like, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not going to kill it. We're not going to, no, we're not, we're not going to kill it. And then the poet comes running out of her room and I tell her what's happening, this giant spider. And she goes, I have the perfect poem. And she runs in a room to get the book. And she comes back out. And before I even knew what was happening, and I just said, can it wait? (laughs) So we go, and we get the spider. And the time writer puts it, like, under glass, on a plate. And now we're going down, like, three flights of stairs in this bazillion-year-old house. And we let the spider go. He's free. And the poet is like... She's going to recite this poem. And actually, to her credit, it was perfect for the occasion. It really was. It was some ode to a tarantula. I don't know. But yeah, so this is the crowd I was hanging with. I'd love to tell you that I wrote something amazing while I was there. I don't think I wrote a word when I was there. But I did wake up without my heart pounding out of my chest for the first time in years. I did feel peace for the first time in years. I was able to pull away from my thoughts and just be in a beautiful place. And I spent most of my days hiking, which was incredible. I would go on these five- or six-hour hikes, and I wouldn't see anyone. Anyone the entire time, I would go uh, one day. One day, I saw an old man and he was walking his chickens. (laughs) And then another day, I actually went onto someone's property and she was making her own honey. And those are the only two people that I ran into the entire week that I was there. And you know, I would go on these hikes and I would just stand on the edge of a mountain and stare at the Pyrenees, and it was just absolutely incredible. And I was coming home from one of these hikes, and I was sitting on the edge of everything. You know, it's just these mountainous, French hills. And I was like, you know what? Maybe this is me now. Like, maybe I'm a very serious writer now. This is, you know, I'm going to embrace my new life because my friends love me, and they believe in me, and I need to be what, you know, they think I am so, you know, I can be worthy of this gift and so I was sitting on the hill and I decided to take a picture with my iPhone because I didn't have a camera and I went to take a picture and I dropped my phone down the side of this cliff and I saw it fall like 50 to 100 feet down 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 like the hill like you know Princess Bride when he falls down the hill like down 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 Shit. I mean, again, remember, there's nothing. There's no store. There's not an Apple store. Believe me, there's nothing. You can't go buy cheese. There's no. So I go and I climb down this side of this hill. And it's like, you know, you go down and there's like chickens. And then you go down, you climb over this wall and you go down and brush and bramble and blush. I mean, it's just brush and bramble everywhere. And I finally go and I look in the bushes because I had kept my eye on my phone when it was falling. And I see that beautiful apple logo just glaring at me but it's a good five feet in to this bramble so now i'm like okay i need gear so i go running back up again up past the chickens up the bramble up back up the hill over the bridges over the br- everything back up and i run in the room and all the other writers are cooking and i'm like my phone fell and i need help and and they've got nothing Like, they're staring at me like I'm from another... Like, they know exactly the poem for a spider to be released. But they've got nothing for helping me find my phone. So, I fine, fine. So I go running up in my room, and I find, like, my wooliest socks. And I put them on, like, up to... As far up to my arms as I possibly can. And I put a hoodie on, and I pull it as tight around my face as I can possibly get the hoodies. Because, again, spiders. And I, I find a broom. And I go back down... And I go through the kitchen and no one's paying any, like nothing. This doesn't mean, it means nothing to them. They're all very artsy and smart and French and it means nothing. And I go past them and I go down the alley, down the thing, over the bramble, over the brush, past the chickens, down, 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 down. And I am able to reach down and actually through prodding and sweeping, I pull my phone out. And it is like the biggest victory of my entire life. Like I'm literally just standing there holding my phone in the air, like the greatest accomplishment of my entire life. And basically I just feel the earth open up beneath me. But it really did. I fell in a bog, (laughs) a literal bog. I looked up the definition of a bog. It's when the earth opens up and you can fall in it. And that's what happened. And I was down to my waist in a bog. And my right leg was kind of caught on something, left leg, she was all the way in up to the hip. And I'm still holding the phone because I am not letting go of my iPhone. And there's no one there to help me, you know. So I literally pull myself out of a bog. <laughs> and I've, I've got my phone, socks on my hands, hoodie around my face, and I'm delighted because this is me. This is me. The person who falls in a bog and pulls herself out while holding herself on one hand is Linda Bailey Walsh, to a T. And I go running in the kitchen and I tell everyone what just happened. You can imagine what this looks like. I have like branches sticking out of my head. And they just go, oh, okay. Well, we're doing our readings in 20 minutes. Okay. So I go upstairs and I change and, um, we go down and everyone reads a piece of their material. And I'm not scared. I, I feel like I know who I am. And I read one of my silly, sentimental, goofy pieces. And the reaction was incredible. Never in a million years would have I anticip- anticipated people standing and clapping and crying And just, it was incredibly validating to me. And the things they said to me, they were like, I could never talk about my feelings like that. I could never do, things you don't realize that you do that other people can't do. I also cannot write for Time Magazine, no matter how much I think I can. But it was a great feeling. And in that moment, I realized that my friends didn't send me to this incredible place because they wanted to change me or they wanted me to change myself and become something else. They sent me to this place because they wanted me to remember who I was. And uh, all I would say about that is, if you're in a place where you can't see yourself, for whatever reason, you can't see who you are anymore, but you're lucky enough to have absolutely incredible, kind, caring people in your life who believe in you, believe them, See yourself through their eyes, because really good people don't encourage people unless they believe in them, and it might help you pull yourself out of a bog. (laughs) Thank you.
0: This is Risk, this is Peter Gabriel behind me again, and we just heard a little interstitial by Hope Brush, Get Up Out of That Bog, based on the song Get Up Off of That Thing, by the Godfather of Soul. Now, our next story comes to us from an extraordinary teacher and world traveler Jonathan Pitts teaches comedy improvisation and other techniques for storytelling in the theater. He's brought his workshops to 50 cities and 29 countries, and he's still going strong with it. The last time he emailed me, he was, I think, teaching a workshop in Vietnam. I highly encourage you to look Jonathan up at globalimprovwalkabout.com. Now, I want to give you a heads up about how this story we're about to hear concerns an incident of sexual assault, so it might be you feel it's best for you to opt out of hearing a story like that today, and that's perfectly okay. I felt like the audience at Lincoln Hall, where this story was recorded at a Risk Live show in Chicago last summer, they seemed especially moved by this journey. Jonathan took us on. So without further ado, here is Jonathan Pitts now for the story we call Two Hours. I
3: was 11 years old. It was 1970. Change had come to a large segment of America, but it did not come to my suburb of Oak Park, Illinois. Oak Park, Illinois now has a reputation of being this amazing bastion of liberality, but it wasn't that then. Back then, it was a place of conformity. And... I was seen as weird, not because I was weird, but because I was different. And in the land of what still had the Eisenhower era and the John Wayne masculinity, rather than the Hate asbury or the Jimi Hendrix, different was not good. I was different for a lot of reasons. I got glasses in second grade, long before a lot of other people. I was also the only child in my school that was an only child. Until seventh grade, I was the only kid from a divorced home. I was the only kid who grew up without a father. I was the only kid who grew up in a multi-generational home. I was small for my size. I was the only kid was allergic to wheat milk and eggs i was motherfucking nutritionally hip long before everybody (laughs) became gluten-free and lactose intolerant but back then i was the strange kid who at the class birthday parties couldn't eat the cake or the ice cream I was the kid who, if I had a hot dog or a burger at McDonald's or Wrigley Field, had to push that dog up through the buns so that I didn't eat the wheat. And back then, being different was weird. But I still liked myself. And I loved playing. Even though as an only child, I loved playing. The most fun I could have was playing outside. I didn't play very long places. I just kind of stayed within a two or three block radius of where I lived. But I loved playing. I loved playing games and sports. It was just something I loved doing. My mom used to say that the way she could punish me was to make me come in early or to ground me. And I even remember pressing my face up against the window, looking out my bedroom window at the kids who were next door who still got to play to 10 o'clock at night. And I envied that. And I envied also that they had siblings. Because when I was a kid, if we were playing kick the can or baseball or hockey in the street, and we got into an argument or a fight, it was always me against that kid and their siblings. One against two, one against three, one against four. And I would often lose, or I would just stand my ground till the moment passed. Now, my grandfather, who I lived with, along with my grandmother and my mom, had started drinking vodka, a pint every day. And that changed the energy in my family and in my home. And I began to seek approval and affirmation outside the family. All the attention went over there to take care of the alcoholic. There was no one to take care of me. And another thing is that nobody was ever allowed inside my house. When my friends would come by, they had to stand on the stoop. They couldn't come in. Which only, of course, added to the weirdness effect. I found out later on, when I figured it out, that my family wouldn't let the kids in the neighborhood in the house because it was to protect my grandfather so that nobody would see him drunk. To protect his reputation. Because of my weirdness, I didn't have a lot of friends at school, but I had friends where I lived, but not at school. My school was a kindergarten through eighth grade school. It was located on Ridgeland and Madison. I grew up on Gunderson and Madison in Oak Park. My school was three and a half blocks away from where I lived. My mom went to that same grammar school, kindergarten through eighth grade. One day, in sixth grade, three boys in my class came up to me and said, they would like me to join their club. Now these were not the hippest, coolest kids. They were not the bad kids. They were kind of like the middle of the road kids, but that was better than what I had. So I said yes. And they're like, great. After school's out, let's, you know, we'll get together. We'll go over to this one guy's house and you'll join our club. We'll like smoke a cigarette, drink a beer, look at some girly magazines, you'll be part of our club." And I was like, oh, this is so cool. That's what I wanted, a team. The rest of school passed that day and I was excited to go with them. And these three boys, you gotta remember, back then there were only three haircuts. <laughs> and me, I had long hair. I was the first kid in my neighborhood to wear bell-bottoms or a vest. And I had long hair. You look at my class photos, and I look pretty sharp at that age. (laughs) Now, I go with them. This one boy, he's got curly blonde hair. And the other boy has got straight blonde hair. And the third boy has dark brown hair. And of those three, I've only spent any time outside of school with the dark-haired boy, like at, you know, one of those family parties or class parties when somebody has a birthday, and I went to that party and, of course, couldn't eat the motherfucking ice cream or have any of the goddamn cake and stood off in the corner pushing my hot dog through the bun. (laughs) So those three boys invited me to go to their club. And their club was actually the one boy's family's garage and that was a block and a half away from the school. So I live three and a half blocks from the school, and this garage and this family home is a block and a half away from school. That's how small the world was. And I'm excited, like, there's gonna be beer, there's going to be cigarettes, there's going to be girly magazines. So I'm like, okay, let's do this, and like, Well, we're going to do it, but we want you to... We're going to go on top of the garage because that's where we keep our club. And this garage was like a standard suburban American garage, and it had a wood picket fence running alongside, and each one of those edges were sharp. And the parts behind it where you could climb up was on the other side as opposed to the side that was facing me. So when I climbed up... Remember, I was small. I needed the help of the kid who was already up there. And he pulled me up, and it was so dangerous feeling because I'm on the side of this picket fence, just on this one part, and the rest of the picket fence, I fall, I'm going to get hurt, I'll break something, I'll cut. And I reach his hand, and they pull me up to the garage roof okay, where's the cigarette? Where's the beer? Where's the girly magazine? And they have a cigarette, and I smoke it horribly. (laughs) To this day, it is the only cigarette I have ever smoked in my life. (laughs) They had a beer, which I didn't know at the time was flat and stale, but for all of you Chicago folks, it was an old style. <laughs> and I had that, and it tasted like crap. And I'm like, oh, man, the cigarettes is not good, and this beer is not good, but I'm almost in the club. Where are the girly magazines? I look at the girly magazines, I'm in. And they're like, well, there's something else we want you to do. I'm like, all right, what is it? They're like, we want you to kiss our penises. And I knew that I didn't want to do that. But I also really wanted to be part of this club. So I just kind of delayed. I was like, mm, well, no, I don't want to do that. But, but, hey, guys, where's the girly magazine? What's going on? Can we, can we do that? And after a while, they're like, talked about other things, then time passed. And I'm still up on the roof. And then they're like, no, nah, we really want you to kiss our penises. And, uh, Again, I'm delaying. I'm keeping quiet. I said once already, no, I don't want to do that. I'm just hoping they'll get this idea out of their minds and stop talking about it, move on. Let's look at the girly magazines. Everything will be fine. I'll be in the club. And we just sat up there for a while. And one of the things I was remember thinking when I was up there was, can I get off this roof? And I looked at it and I knew it was too difficult for me to get off. If I jumped off at my size, I was going to break my legs. And as difficult as it was getting up on air and needing someone else's help, there is no way I can John Wayne this down. I can't. So I'm stuck on the roof with these three guys. Probably another time they're like, you know, uh, uh, time passed. They're like, really, you know, it's not that hard. Just kiss our penises, you'll be in the club. By the way, this club did not have a name. (laughs) And I held out, and I said no, and I didn't do it. And they got bored. And they're like, all right, let's go downstairs. We all get off the garage one by one. And indeed, I needed their help to get down off that garage. Going on that wobbly leg on the wood picket fence. And even then, I have to let go of the fence and land. And we're all sort of in the backyard. And the brown-haired boy, he's bored, so he's like, I'm going to go home. And he left. And the curly-haired boy went and got his older brother. And his older brother showed up. He was an eighth grader. And I don't know if you remember, but the difference between sixth grade and eighth grade was a lot. So he was taller than me. He was bigger than me. He was an eighth grader. So at that point, he was authority. I was going to tell him what was going on. He would understand and not have anything happen. I wouldn't have to kiss their penises. I'd be in the club. We'd look at girly magazines. I could go home. And so he said, Let's go in the garage. And I go in the garage, and it's just him and me in the garage. And he's like, what's going on? Tell me what's happening. And I do. And now this garage is like a standard suburban Chicago garage. There's no car in it, there's some tools on the walls, but otherwise it's just empty space and him and me. And I'm standing about an arm length away from him. Except for I'm looking up to him, because he's bigger than me, and I say, They want me to do this. They want me to kiss their penises, and I don't want to." And he looked at me, and he pulled out a knife, and he opened it, and he said, "'You are going to do this, and you're going to start with me.'" I felt so trapped. In that empty garage, there was nowhere to run. And if I tried to run, he was bigger than me. He would be faster than me. Now, it was a Boy Scout knife, but it didn't matter because it was still long enough that he could have killed me with it. I didn't know what else to do. So I gave in. I got down on my knees. He opened up his pants and there was his penis. I put my mouth around it, but I opened my mouth as wide as I possibly could because I didn't want my lips, I didn't want my teeth, I didn't want my tongue to touch his penis. But it still did. This went on for about 30 seconds, a minute, who knows? I had no sense of time at that moment. And then he stopped. And he went out, and he got the other two boys, and they came in, and he said, now do them. I got down on my knees again, and I opened up my mouth as wide as I could to try to not touch any of their penises. And again, for whatever length of time it was that I do not remember, And then after a period of time, it just stopped. Nobody seemed happy. Nobody seemed satisfied. I knew at that point there are no girly pictures. And we walk outside the garage. And the blonde boy with the straight hair, he leaves, whereas the two brothers go inside their home. And I walk home the one and a half block to the school, the three and a half blocks to my home, and I remember thinking, somebody should have told me that this could happen. That was a Friday, so when I went back to school on Monday, I was walking through the halls when somebody called me a nickname. It was a nickname that I had never heard before, and I didn't even know what it meant. And then, over the course of the day, a couple other people called me by that same nickname. And I did what you do when you don't know what's going on. You just kind of smile and go, ha, <laughs> And the nickname stayed for a while. Like a week passed, and I was being called this in the classroom. I was being called it in the hallways. And I didn't know what the word meant. So I... Asked this one girl who was always nice. She was a very nice girl. And I went up to her and I said, everybody is calling me this nickname. Do you know what it is? And she told me, it's BJ for blowjob. And she got so embarrassed, her cheeks turned pink and she walked away and I just stood there and I wanted to die. Now, over the next two and a half years going to that school, that nickname followed me around. But that wasn't the worst. One day when I was either walking to school or walking home from school, there was a uh, car dealership that was on the corner of Gunderson and Madison. And that car dealership had a window that had been broken out, so there was that wood pane that had gone up there. And either going to school or coming back to school, I'm walking... And then I notice, spray painted in green spray paint, a circle, and inside that circle are the words, John Pitts is a fag. Out in public, for everyone to see. All the cars going by on busy Madison Avenue, anybody walking to school, anybody walking home, there it is. Like Hester Prynne's scarlet letter, John Pitts is a fag which back in 1970 was the worst thing you could call a boy. Now, you're probably wondering, why didn't you tell someone? As I walked home when it first happened, uh, the the rape first happened, I thought to myself, who can I tell? I thought about telling my mom, but I thought, she's a girl, what does she know of these things? Remember, I was 11. Pre-Phil Donahue, pre-Ofer Winfrey, pre from all this information that was kept hidden, that was finally spoken. I thought about telling my dad, but I only saw him one day a year. What's there to tell? I thought about telling my grandfather, but he was drunk. I thought about telling my teachers, but it didn't take place at school, so I didn't tell anybody. But that spray-painted John Pitts is a fag, I did tell my mom. And she was like, let's go to the hardware store and get some spray paint. And so we did. And then we got back home, and she handed me the spray can and said, go turn those into flowers. I was devastated by that. You want me, a kid being called a fag, to turn that statement into flowers? And she also wanted me to do it alone because she thought it would be good for me. And I remember standing there, spray painting that John Pitts is a fag, turning it into flowers. And I wanted to burn that car dealership down. It felt so unfair. It wasn't my fault, and I was utterly betrayed. And nobody was on my side. Over the next two and a half years, my grades dropped. I stopped playing with kids my age because I was scared of them. I played with kids younger than me on my block, which of course made me look weird. But at least they were safe. They weren't going to pull a knife on me. And for a long time if I see a group of boys I would be scared of them Because I knew what could happen When I graduated From 8th grade My mom took this 8th grade graduation photo of me Because she was proud that I was graduating From that school But I couldn't wait to get out of there And I still have that photo And in that photo I'm holding open the diploma But I'm also doing this Which for anyone who can't see this Because they're listening to a podcast (laughs) My middle finger is up I was excited to go to high school because my high school was farther away. Oak Park River Forest High School. I thought, it's a new start, things are gonna be good. Uh, I went as a freshman, I joined the soccer team because I thought it would be fun to play soccer. Being little, there weren't a lot of sports that I could play. But I played soccer, and I made a couple friends on the soccer team. One guy that I would talk to on the bus. We didn't hang out afterwards, but we would, like, talk on the bus and then have practice and, you know, some other people that I liked. And it felt pretty good. And then one day when I was on the bus, he leaned into me and he went, Hey, BJ. And I knew it had followed me. That day... During practice, I spent the whole practice figuring out how to get the fuck off that team. So I invented an accident. I invented an accident and told my mom that I got hurt at soccer, and I told my soccer coach that I got hurt on the bicycle. I wasn't good to soccer players. I don't think the coach cared. But I quit, and I was off. And I just kept my head low that whole freshman year. My sophomore year, I joined the wrestling team, thinking because it's something I can do size-wise, and that wrestling's tough, that, you know, it'd be a macho thing to do that nobody would think that I was gay, having no idea of the homoerotic understandings <laughs> of wrestling. <laughs> so I joined the wrestling team. And for, like, three years, I was a horrible, terrible wrestler. My career at Oak Park Forest was one win and 31 losses. 28 by pin but I at least had a group of people who accepted me. And then I graduated. I was adrift for a couple years. And then I took my first improv class. I took my first improv class at Second City and it felt so good, even though I wasn't good at the time. It still felt really good. And I kept doing it. And I kept doing improv classes. You know, what I learned from improv was that as an adult, it is okay to play. And that the playing that I loved to do as a kid still was okay to do. I personally believe it's a divine right of being human to play. But I still didn't tell anybody. It wasn't until I was 21 or 22 that I finally told somebody what happened. And as painful as the incident was, as painful as those years were, the 11 years of silence created their own trauma. Trauma that was like interest rates adding on worse and worse. I didn't go to my first therapist session until I was 28. And then, for about two years, I stopped performing, I stopped doing anything. I just spent those two years working hard on therapy. I had one therapist, I said to my therapist, well, why do I gotta keep coming to this? You know, it only happened once. And she said, if you were only shot once, would you go to the emergency room? I said, like, good point, point," and I kept going. Through therapy and recovery. There's 12-step groups for Survivors Anonymous, and I would go to those as well as Adult Journal Alcoholics and Al-Anon. Through therapy and recovery, I learned it's okay to live. It's okay to be alive. And the part of me that wanted to be dead no longer wanted that. Now, years later, I was... uh, talking with one of my favorite improv teachers. He was also from Oak Park, Illinois, so he kind of got what I was talking about with Oak Park back then. And as we were talking, he said, how long did that take, that afternoon? Because I told him everything that happened. He said, how long did it take that afternoon? And I said, about two hours. And he went, hm, funny. How two hours can change your life forever. Thank you.
2: still in the valley walking in a parking garage first time i met a wolf in person at first i thought it was a dog i tried to dodge and he was faster than i'd ever had to be he smiled and howled in the same moment
0: is almost all of this week's episode, folks. This is Jensen McRae behind me now, and we just heard from Jonathan Pitts. And Jonathan thought it might be nice if we shared that there are a lot of places to go for support in the way that he did, such as Sexual Assault Survivors Anonymous, which can be found at sasaworldwide.org. And don't forget to look up globalimprovwalkabout.com where Jonathan teaches folks all around the world the creative outlet of improv. I would recommend it to anyone. And Jonathan's story was edited by Hope Brush. We'll be right back. We're back. Folks, many of you ask if we have any merch other than the Risk book which, by the way, you can find wherever books are sold. But if all else fails, they definitely have the Risk book at Amazon, which has nearly 438 five-star reviews. But we also have the super cute Kevin Allison pin, as well as Risk shirts, mugs, hats, phone cases, tote bags, all of that is at risk-show.com slash shop. So go check it out. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk. Now
2: I bury my smile and show no interest. Now I carry myself a little different.